grounded yet exceptional, humble, connected to family and friends, and not wanting any fuss yet possessing abilities of global significance. Alec Campbell, room number 308. A soldier who enlisted at the age of 16, Alec Campbell lived to be the last surviving Anzac as well as leading an uncommonly vigorous life. When fate picked Alexander William Alec Campbell out to be the last man standing from the 1915 Gallipoli campaign, it could not have found a better representative of the 50,000 Australians who fought there. But, as Alec once pointed out, there was nothing really extraordinary in being the last, simply he had been one of the youngest at Gallipoli. On the 2nd of July 1915, Alec Campbell presented himself at the recruiting office where he gave his age as 18 years, 4 months. He was actually only 16 years and 4 months. In those days, if you were big enough, you were good enough, Alec recalled later. At Gallipoli, he served as a rifleman and as a runner, braving the Turkish snipers. After two months in the trenches, he was evacuated with a fever that caused permanent partial facial paralysis. At the end of August 1916, he returned home, still too young to enlist. He went on to lead an uncommonly vigorous life, working as a carpenter, competing in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race seven times, and becoming the bantamweight boxing champion of Tasmania. At the age of 56, he graduated in economics at the University of Tasmania. A state funeral was held when he died in 2002 at the age of 103. The Tasmanian Premier, Jim Bacon, modestly observed, Alec glorified neither his own accomplishments in war nor his elevation as one of the country's heroes. He just enlisted, fought for his country, then came back to Tasmania and got on with his life. Amy Sherwin, room number 119. Ladies and gentlemen, take your seats. You're about to meet none other than Amy Sherwin, otherwise known as the Tasmanian Nightingale, with a voice as beautiful as the island from which she hails. As a little girl playing around her home at Judbury, Frances Amy Lillian Sherwin sang and imagined herself as being discovered like the Swedish Nightingale, Jenny Lind. When she was 23, she was discovered by members of the Royal Italian Opera Company picnicking at Judbury during their Tasmanian tour. When they overheard her singing, they invited her to tour with them and she made her debut at Hobart's Theatre Royal. She moved on to Melbourne with the company and found more success as well as cries of Bravo Tasmania! From Melbourne, Amy went to Sydney where her rich bird-like notes sang through the hall as enchantingly as those of a songster in a grove. Overnight success gave her the sobriquet, the Tasmanian Nightingale. During a career of 30 years, Amy toured England, Europe, the USA, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, India, China and Japan. Despite the international recognition she received, Amy always included Tasmania in her Australian tours. She wrote to the Mercury, expressing her special interest in the native talent of my dear Tasmania. Making her home in England, she retired from the stage in 1908 to care for her invalid daughter. Amy's later years found her in strange circumstances, yet such was the fondness felt for her by the Tasmanian people, a fundraiser arranged by the Lord Mayor of Hobart in 1934 allowed her some comfort in her final year. Australian Musical News reported that she was acclaimed by critics as the greatest soprano of her age, receiving the ultimate accolade of Prima Donna Assoluta. Daryl Baldock, 
Room number 318. Every fan of the St Kilda Football Club knows Daryl Baldock. After all, the Doc led them to their first and only premiership in 1966. But this story goes beyond that grand final and all the way from country Tasmania to state parliament. Daryl John the Doc Baldock gave up, grew up on the northwest coast of Tasmania, juggling an Aussie rules football and a cricket bat. In his teens, he put down the cricket bat and focused solely on football, a move which paid off. He played senior football at 16 and captained the state at 20. By then, he was famous for his ambidextrous ball handling skills and balance that earned him the moniker Mr. Magic. In 1962, the Doc moved to Victoria when the St Kilda Football Club recruited him. He played at centre-half forward, kicking 236 goals in 119 games from 1962 to 1968. And in 1966, Bulldog captained St Kilda to their first ever premiership. He returned to Tasmania as captain slash coach of La Trobe from 1969 to 1974, set, setting a West Football Union record with four straight premierships. During this time, in 1972, he became a Labour member of the Tasmanian House of Assembly. It soon became clear that the leadership skills, determination, courage and sincerity that made the Doc a success on the football oval made him a success off the field. Within three years of his election to Parliament, he was appointed as a Minister of the Crown. In 1987, the still very humble Doc was approached to be Premier, but he resigned from Parliament to become Senior Coach of St Kilda to help lift the football club off the bottom of the league ladder. David Foster, room number 133. Bow down before David Foster, a mountain of a man who possesses superior strength, unmatched might and uncommon kindness. Oh, and he's not too bad with an axe. A world champion woodchopper and previous Tasmanian of the year, David Foster is the undisputed king of Australian axemen. He is the first person in sporting history to have won 1,800 championships and 186 world titles. He attended school in Campbelltown, but was not particularly interested in his classes, and at 16 years of age, he joined his father on the wood chip circuit carnival. The two of them won the world double-handed saw title in Sydney for 11 years straight. Wood chopping is a sprinter's sport. It consists of ferocious bursts of power incorporating accuracy and precision, and David Foster can split a match with an axe with a full blow. Scientific analysis in a laboratory measured his arm power speed to be three times faster than Muhammad Ali's was when Ali was in his prime. A huge man by anybody's measure, David's 178 kilogram, 195 centimeter frame delivers 2,544 kilograms of force with each blow of his axe. Along with his wood chopping prowess, he is also well known for his motivational speaking and cultural, charitable and community activities. In a 2006 fundraising race event for the Cancer Council of Tasmania and TLC for Kids, David lowered his 178 kilo body into a 15 kilo kayak. The kayak cracked and the big axe man ended up in the lake. Also, the life jacket did not fit and he had it on his on as a wristband. They're either going to have to build me a bigger one or get me a six-man dinghy.
Denny King, room number 206. Denny King was the epitome of strength, independence, and being at one with the natural world. His achievements were incredible, varied, and sometimes hard to believe. Born into a humble, hard-working Huonville family in 1909, Denny King moved to the isolated Weld Valley with his parents after only one year of school. Here, he was homeschooled by his parents, as well as learning bushcraft, track cutting, prospecting, and countless other outdoor skills from his tin miner father. When the family farm was destroyed in a bushfire in 1934, he moved to Cox Blight with his father and became a professional tin miner. He relished the hard labour which helped shape the tremendous strength for which he would eventually become famous. In 1940, Denny enlisted in the Australian Imperial Force and went on to serve as a sapper in the Middle East, the Northern Territory, Queensland and Papua New Guinea during World War II. In 1945, he returned to southwest Tasmania and built a house at Malaluka, a town near his father's tin mining lease that was only accessible by sea or foot. This began a remarkable project that formed a large part of the rest of Denny's life, opening up the southwest to the rest of the world. He introduced mechanised mining to the region using equipment brought in on fishing boats, built huts and single-handedly carved an airstrip into the bush. He also shared his expert knowledge of the landscape and natural environment with the outside world, discovering many plants and sending samples to museums across the world. He also became an accomplished painter. He died in 1991 at the age of 81, one year after being commended by the Governor of Tasmania for his vision and outstanding efforts. Dolly Dalrymple Briggs, room number 214. The granddaughter of an inspirational freedom fighter and a hero in her own right, Dolly Dalrymple is a true Tasmanian icon. Miss Dalrymple Briggs was known as the first half-caste child born in the colony of Van Diemen's Land. Dolly's father, the sealer George Briggs, abandoned her around 1814, leaving her to be raised by the local surgeon Jacob Mount Garrett. Dolly's mother, Warita Moitiyina was one of many Aboriginal women traded as slaves by sealers. She had no say in her daughter's future. Baptised and taught to read and write, Dolly lived as a servant in the Mount Garrett household. In 1825, neighbours reported that Dr. Mount Garrett had shot her. At this point, Dolly's life changed dramatically. She went to live with a convict stockman and began her own family. In 1831, at the height of violent clashes between Aborigines and settlers, Dolly and her three daughters were attacked by local Aborigines. She held off the attack for six hours until help arrived. Dolly's heroism was celebrated across the island. Several historians wrote accounts of the events that were published around the world, one describing it as one of the most stirring incidents in the history of the Black War. She even featured in a novel as Daring Dolly Dalrymple. Dolly became the first Aborigine to be granted land and also convinced the governor to release her mother from the Flinders Island prison where Aboriginal survivors of the war were exiled. Dolly and her husband went on to become the owners of a coal mine and two hotels, one of which they called the Native Youth Inn. Doshin Sween Mick Richardson, room number 137. 
The great Goshen Swain Richardson, known as Mick to his friends, inventor extraordinaire, created countless clever machines in his shed at Penguin. One of Australia's greatest and most daring inventors, Goshen Swain Mick Richardson, had a hankering for inventing odd but functional devices. He first established a small cordial drink factory in Penguin in 1900. He later added a bicycle manufacturing and repair workshop and then expanded to motorcycles and motorcars. In 1907, he designed and built a flying machine out of cycle tubing, wood and canvas. The local doctor, DeWitt Henty, took it for a spin in 1908. Launching from the top of Cairns Hill, Dr. Henty was flung into the brave new aviation world, peddling two propellers. The machine flew so well that for a quarter mile it was airborne and began to head out to sea. Dr. Henty could not swim and did not relish a sea landing, so he nosedived into Watcombe Beach, breaking three ribs and a collarbone. Richardson also invented a device which, at certain intervals, added a drop of water to the fuel intake of a motor car. This resulted in a smoother motor and better miles per gallon. To the delight of housewives, he built a machine that manufactured excellent clothes pegs and he designed telephone equipment that was used for many years in the Australian telephone network. Unfortunately, the tale of this ingenious man ends somewhat sadly. His inventions drew the attention of two men who took Goshen Swin Richardson and his machines to Sydney where they talked him into signing away the rights to his inventions. He received wages but never any royalties from the profits of his inventions and was ultimately forced to declare bankruptcy. Horton Forest, room number 114. Some men lead steady, unglamorous lives. Not Captain Horton Forrest. He joined the army, travelled around the world and became a famous painter. Horton Forrest's life was an adventure right from the start. He was born in France in 1828 to a noble English family with royal connections. Soon they were involved in French revolutionary problems so they fled to Germany and then to England. Soon after that Forrest moved to Jamaica with his father before coming home again and becoming a captain in the army. In 1858 he married Susan Bunce and lived on the Isle of Man where Forrest began painting marine subjects. But he became bored with England once again and they headed off to Brazil, then kept sailing all the way to Tasmania which they reached by 1876. At first they lived on the northeast coast followed by a move to Sorrel where Forrest worked as a superintendent of police. In 1881 he resigned the position and decided to become a full-time artist, although everyone still called him Captain Horton. With more time on his hands, Forrest's art developed in detail and quality, taking on romantic tones as well as photographic realism. His output was prolific, ranging from rural scenes, still life, hunting portraits and depictions of maritime life. In 1899, his paintings of Mount Wellington and Russell Falls became the subjects of the first pictorial stamps produced in Australia. It was a sign of the regard in which his work was held. Later, his paintings would be auctioned at Sotheby's in London. These days, his works are highly sought after and very expensive. He died in 1925, aged 97, at Melton Mowbray, his final home. John Skinner Prout, room number 104. We all want success, but it's not always easy to come by. 
John Skinner Prout spent his life searching for it until he finally stumbled over it when he made the move to Hobart Town. A self-taught painter from Plymouth, John Skinner Prout waited a long time to taste success. Born in 1805, he spent many of his early years painting and sketching in the west of England. After a few years of unhappiness and no success, he moved to Sydney with his wife and seven children in 1840. But life in Sydney wasn't much better. Prout took to lecturing as well as painting to supplement his income, but Sydney was in a state of economic depression and not many people could afford to attend his lectures. In 1844, the family packed up again and this time moved south to Hobart Town. It was in Tasmania that Prout finally achieved recognition and success. Hobartians welcomed him as a lecturer, artist and teacher and his arrival stimulated the work of local landscape artists. He published five groups of Tasmanian scenes called the Tasmanian Illustrated and received commissions from many of the landed gentry to paint their country properties. Many of his works can be found these days in public galleries, particularly in Hobart and Sydney. His best oil painting is thought to be a waterfall near Lake St. Clair. He eventually returned to England where he organised the first exhibition of Australian painting. He died at Kentish Town in 1876. Lily Poulet Harris, room number 142. A century before Elise Perry became the poster girl of women's cricket in Australia, Lily Poulet Harris was driving the ball to the boundary as captain, coach and founder of Australia's first female cricket team. At the age of 21, Lily Poulet Harris founded the Oyster Cove Ladies Cricket Club in 1894, the first female cricket club in the Australian colonies. By the end of the following year, there, are, there were at least six ladies' teams competing in the competition. The teams did not adopt the rational dress, which was popular in some women's sport overseas, preferring instead to appear in prim summer dresses. This uniform was pretty, perhaps, but a definite disadvantage when trying to field the ball. One observer noted, it is no uncommon thing to see a lady holding her hat on with one hand, striving to catch a ball with the other and succeeding in doing neither. It was considered to be very bad form if a lady stopped a ball with her petticoats. Lily was remarkably successful in piloting her team to many a victory. Her batting average for the 1894 season was 32.6 and her undefeated 64 was the highest score for that year. Comments on her batting included such praises as prettily played innings or good style and the feature of the match. Lily either batted as an opener or at number three. Fear, it is said, was a thing unknown to her. The following year, a Hobart sports writer recorded the growing interest in cricket, extending to the weaker sex, who often have a quiet match upon a romantic little plateau on the domain immediately beyond the upper cricket ground. Louise Lovely, room number 203. Take your seats and settle in. Louise Lovely is here to entertain you with the acting prowess that made her a star of countless silent films in Hollywood. Born Nellie Louise Alberti, later Louise Cabresi, in 1895 in Paddington, Sydney, she had several star turns as a child actress on stage before she joined a company touring New Zealand. Not long after that, she moved to Hollywood, where executives at Universal Studios gave her the name Louise Lovely. 
She became a member of the so-called Gumleaf Mafia, Australian actors who found success in the American film industry, starring in such films as The Last of the Duanes and The Wings of the Morning. By 1914, she was a popular leading lady in America's silent film industry, starring in westerns and melodramas. In 1924, she returned to Australia with her husband, William Welch. They conducted a day at the studio in Hobart, where Marie Balky peterson showed Louise her book, Jeweled Nights. In 1925, Louise filmed an adaptation of the book on Tasmania's West Coast, starring as the cross-dressing heroine. Although Louise envisioned making Tasmania a second Hollywood, the film was a financial failure. Her marriage broke up and she was divorced in 1928. Louise later married a theatre manager named Andrew Cohen, and in 1949, the two of them made a permanent home in Hobart. They managed the Prince of Wales Theatre in Macquarie Street, Hobart. Louise also ran the adjacent, adjacent sweet shop until she died in 1980. She's remembered as one of the most successful Australian actresses in Hollywood, although her success abroad was never replicated in her home country. Lucy Beaton, room number 305. Please, please show some respect. You're in the presence of Lucy Beaton, also known as the Queen of the Isles. Lucy Beaton was born on a windswept island in the wild waters of Bass Strait. Her father was a weather-beaten sealer and her mother was Emma Renner, a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman from Cape Portland. Despite her humble origins, Lucy Beaton was destined to become one of the most admired and respected characters in Tasmanian history, but her journey would be one of adversity and toil. It's hard to imagine, but Lucy Beaton, granddaughter of a wealthy London jeweller, privately tutored, and a commodore of a fleet of trading vessels, was once considered a savage. Her only crime was to have an Aboriginal mother, which meant that in 1831, she was about to be taken away and imprisoned with other Aboriginal families at Waibalina on Flinders Island. Lucy's father, Thomas Beaton, had been transported to Tasmania for his role as mutineer in the Royal Navy. With little tolerance for injustice, he demanded that the governor reunite his family. Lucy's father shared with her the skills of a sailor and a trader. Her mother instilled a deep respect for her indigenous culture and gave her knowledge of crafts such as necklace making that had been handed down to her people for a thousand generations. Building on the success of her own education, Lucy was also keenly aware of the importance of development opportunities for other Aborigines living on the Bass Strait Islands. She campaigned for the establishment of a school and, when the government refused to provide funds, taught children herself from a tent on Badger Island. Lucy campaigned for land rights and justice for Aboriginal people in Tasmania, inspiring later generations to maintain the struggle for generations to come. Noel Wilson Norman, room number 209. Once upon a time, there was a child truant who ran away from home, went bush, rode camels with Afghans, and returned home to become a celebrated and anonymous novelist. Noel Norman was born on the 14th of July, 1901, at stately Claremont House, the home of his uncle, Albert Flexmore. Despite a traditional, privileged upbringing, Noel was impossible to control as a boy, 
From as early as 10 years of age, he was seldom at home, running off instead to work on farms. By 15, he had vanished altogether and no one knew whether he was alive or dead. It was later discovered that he had made his way to Western Australia to work as a jackaroo, had lived with a group of Australian Aboriginal people and accompanied Afghan camel drivers and their charges across the Jibba and Saltbush deserts. In 1922, he was reported to be destitute in Melbourne and his father reluctantly paid his fare home to Hobart. Noel then started to write short stories. Neighbours and relations commiserated with his parents in their disappointment over their eldest son and he was considered to be quite eccentric. Though he did his best to suppress the publicity surrounding the success of his first novel, Tibble Man, published in London in 1931 under the pseudonym of Louis K., Overseas reviewers in the Sunday Times likened his work to Joseph Conrad and Marcus Clark. Twelve more novels, all based on his time in Western Australia, followed in quick succession. At the same time, his stories were published in top American magazines, netting him up to $3,000 each. Financially secure, as his father had never been, Noel Wilson Norman brought large areas of land in southern Tasmania and built new houses to assist poor families. He retained his radical and agnostic views. Ricky Ponting, room number 224. Say hello to Tasmanian royalty. Mowbray's most famous export is the great Australian batsman of the modern era. He's scored more runs and broken more records than you've had hot dinners while still remaining a top bloke. Must be the Mowbray in him. The highest run scorer in Australian history and one of the all-time international cricketing greats, Ricky Ponting was born in the humble working-class suburb of Mowbray in northern Launceston. After shattering multiple schoolboy records, Ricky made his debut for Tasmania at 17 before making 96 on his national test debut at the age of 20. After a few minor setbacks, he ensconced himself in the Australian team and set about smashing records the way he had done since he was a boy. By the time he retired, he had made 41 test centuries, 31-day international centuries, and 27,082 international runs. He is widely accepted as the greatest Australian batsman of the modern era. Also highly rated is his fielding ability, but the image he might be most remembered for alongside his immaculate on-drives and crunching pull shots, was when he blew his wife, Rihanna, a kiss from the middle of the field after making 200 at Adelaide against India in 2003. He also captained his country in 77 tests and 230 one-day internationals, winning 48 and 167 respectively. Now retired, Ricky is a highly sought-after commentator and public speaker, as well as dedicating a lot of time to his charity, the Ponting Foundation, which helps young Australians suffering from cancer. He also works as a mentor for the next generation of cricketers, leading the Mumbai Indians to the IPL Championship in 2015 as head coach. Sue Becker, room number 226. Exercise trainers on TV these days are all so serious. No wonder most of us would rather change the channel. If only we still had Sue Becker and her beguiling charm helping us break a sweat in our living rooms. 
Born in Tasmania in 1927, Sue Becker was the femme fatale of fitness in the 1960s and 1970s black and white TV. On Australian television, Sue's show was called Swing in Time. Her fame was spread to Britain and Canada. In the UK, she hosted Boomph with Becker from 1971. She targeted women in the home who were too busy to visit gymnasiums or keep fit classes. With her English infections of darlings and my dears, Sue soon, soon built up a rapport with her audience. Her infectious enthusiasm and practical, no-nonsense persona clicked with women and they participated with her as they watched. Many women envied Sue's fine figure but they weren't jealous of her. Sue was unpretentious and possessed the unique and genuine gift of encouraging them through her program. She could chastise them, but nobody took offence, as she often joked and was self-deprecating while setting them realistic goals for troublesome body areas. Her gravelly voice and form-fitting black leotard also interested men, so when she teased them, your doctor will say, what I advise is a daily 10-minute session with Sue, so start today and that means you. Many did as she told them. Her programs became a regular routine for women and men all around the world. Cheers, dears, she would encourage raising a glass of champagne at the end of the show. Taffy the Bee Man, room number 313. Introducing Mr. Halma Henry Hastings Huxley, or, to his many friends and admirers, Taffy the Bee Man, a lover and pioneer of all things bee-related, he was a bona fide celebrity until he was mysteriously murdered. Once one of Tasmania's most well-known residents, Mr. Halma Henry Hastings Huxley was so famous he could boast that a letter addressed to him as Taffy the Bee Man, Tasmania would be delivered to his humble hut on the Hewan Highway at Lower Longley. Taffy was a simple soul, content with having little, living close to nature, and wise in its ways. He was a constant hero of what he called bee-embarrassing situations. He was often heard to say, I love handling bees, especially when it means helping people who are concerned about them. Taffy alternated his 90 hives between the flowing leatherwoods of Mount Arrowsmith and the spring apple, pear, and raspberry blossoms of the Huon Valley for over 20 years. He sold his honey on the side of the road at both locations. A thousand people from all over the world signed his visitors books, including the then governor's wife, Lady Binney, in 1946. Taffy sent her a leatherwood tree, which he planted in the grounds of Government House. But while he led a happy, honest life, Taffy met an end that was anything but. In 1962, he was found dead in his hut, the coroner ruling that he had been murdered. Killed by a travelling stranger, Taffy was a man with hundreds of fans and friends and was mourned by many around the state, the country and the world. William Bulow Gould, room number 128. There's only one William Bulow Gould, convict thief, drunkard and artist extraordinaire. He produced some of the finest sketches and paintings Australia has ever seen while maintaining a strict regime of trouble causing. In 1826, William Bulow Gould was convicted for stealing colours and by force of arms stolen one coat. 
He was sentenced to seven years beyond the seas and left behind his life in England as a painter of porcelain, as well as a wife and two children. During the journey to Van Diemen's Land, he painted portraits of the officers aboard the convict ship before his life of incarceration in the harshest penal stations began soon after arriving in Hobart Town. While serving repeated sentences, he was regularly reconvicted for theft and drunkenness, William was commissioned to paint watercolours of native flora, birds, fishes and other sea life. In 1832, while at the notorious Macquarie Harbour Penal Station, William produced his Gould's Book of Fishes, a sketchbook of 36 separate watercolour paintings. His 1848 still life of oil painting, Cat O' Nine Tails, refers to the convict punishment of flogging with a nine-tailed rope whip, which inflicted parallel wounds similar to a cat's scratches. In 19th century slang, a cat was also known as a long-tailed thief, blessed with nine lives. The Cat O' Nine Tales highlights Gould's eye for composition in his charming, decorative and primitive style. The National Gallery of Australia's Head of Australian Art, Anne Gray, perceives Gould's paintings as a cat among the fishes looking out at us with a sly grin on its face. It is in seventh heaven among this cornucopia of fish. It is full of character and of humour. William Charles Pigunit, room number 201. When was the last time you scaled a mountain simply to paint the mountain next to it? William Charles Pigunit, the first professional landscape painter born in Australia, made a sterling career out of it. The first Australian-born professional landscape painter and the first Tasmanian-born artist, William Charles Pigunit, was born in Hobart Town on the 27th of August, 1836, to well-connected European parents. He was fascinated with the natural environment and eagerly joined remote bushwalking expeditions with scientists, surveyors and explorers. Although other colonial artists had travelled widely, William endeavoured to depict the difficult-to-access, uninhabited, awe-inspiring and pristine wilderness. To illustrate the grandeur of the Tasmanian wilds became his passion and vocation. One of William's best-loved paintings is one of his most romantic and brooding works. A mountaintop, Tasmania, see 1886. It is not a picture of a particular spot, but a work of the imagination, a synthesis of different powerful impressions encountered on his adventures. William described it in a letter as being created to show the peculiar, one might say weird, character of the mountain solitudes where basalt and greenstone is the geological structure, such as Mount Wellington, Ben Lomond, Mount Olympus, the King William Range, etc. It was purchased by the Tasmanian government in 1889 and languished in storage without its frame, removed from its stretches and in pieces until 1978, when the art conservator reconstructed and restored it. A mountaintop Tasmania has since been included in a number of major exhibitions of art of Australian art, a tribute to William Charles Pigunit and his appreciation of the mystery and monumentality of Tasmania's natural environment. William K, room number 109. 
When your father and your grandfather are both architects, what do you do? If you're William Kay, you design a famous building on the other side of the world, of course. The son of an architect and the grandson of a famous architect, William Porden Kay was only ever going to be one thing, an architect. Born in 1809 in London, he studied and worked with his father until he built a name in his own, in his own right. In 1842, Governor John Franklin and his wife Lady Jane invited him to Tasmania to serve as the chief architect. They were unhappy that the two leading architects of the colony were emancipated convicts and wanted a gentleman in charge. When he arrived, he alternately held the roles of Director of Public Works and Colonial Architect, switching back and forth a number of times as governors and other figures of authority changed. Nevertheless, he got on with his work and created a number of worthwhile buildings and pieces of infrastructure. His grandest achievement was Government House, which he designed in the Gothic Revival style. It was built from sandstone quarried on site and took two years to build. It has 73 rooms in varying styles, such as Elizabeth and Jacobian Revival. The scale and grandeur of the entrance hall, grand corridor and state rooms are unequalled in Australia. In the 1850s, his eyesight began failing and he retired in 1858. He returned to England where he died in 1897. Please excuse my pronunciation. Waritimoe to Ryan. In 1797, years before the cities of Hobart and Launceston were established, the ship Sydney Cove was wrecked among the many islands of Bass Strait. Word soon spread from the survivors who made it back to Sydney that these islands were teeming with fur seals. Waratimoa Tiraina was about 10 years old when around 1810 she was taken by British sailors to work in the sealing trade. She was stolen away from her father, the chief Manalagina, into a dangerous world beyond the reach of the law. Over the next two decades, Waratamoa Tirayana survived hardship and deprivation, bearing five children to George Briggs, only to be sold to another sealer when Briggs replaced her with a younger woman. In 1825, she embarked on a sealing expedition to St. Paul's Island in the Indian Ocean, but instead was marooned on the Isle of Rodriguez. After several months, she found passage to Mauritius and then to Sydney. It took Waratimoatirayana two years to find her way back to her own island home. A resilient woman, she spent another three years with the sealers before being sent to Waibalina on Flinders Island, the final home for Aborigines who had survived the violence of the Tasmanian frontier. During all this time, Waratamoa Turayanu's eldest daughter Dolly had not forsaken her. Having married and obtained a grant of land, she petitioned the governor for her mother's release from Waibalina. In 1841, nearly 30 years after she was separated from her daughter, they were reunited. Mrs. Briggs, as she was then called, was enchanted by her youngest grandson, Lewis. She would carry him on her back on long journeys through the bush. No doubt she intrigued him with tales of her perilous adventures and shared the cultural strength that had carried her through an amazing life. Mm-hmm.